Activism isn't about being loud, it's about making a meaningful change. I'm a catalyst for change. Catalyst for change. I saw what was happening to our planet and the injustice of climate change. I was like, wow, I'm an activist at heart. Combining art and activism to inspire change. I had to find my place in activism as a young black woman. I realized you're never too small to take action. You have ideas for what a climate resilient future looks like. Protecting the environment isn't a wise people's thing. It's something for everyone. I wanted to learn about how inequality, poverty and gender intersect. Intersectional feminism is important to discuss. Now people are joining me and we're making change. I had to learn to trust my abilities and understand that my voice mattered. I proved to myself what I could do. Change needs to start with you and me. Youth are leading. Welcome to Youth Tell All, a homegrown South African podcast sharing stories of young people taking action to create a more sustainable and equitable future for all. My name is Almaz Mudali. I'm a youth activist and debater with a specific interest in climate change and bridging the gap between the arts, sciences and technology to find solutions. In today's episode, we'll be hearing from Sibusiso Mazomba. Sibusiso is 20 years old, originally from Johannesburg, but currently in Cape Town, where he's doing his third year at UCT studying marine biology and oceanography. Sibusiso was an official youth delegate for the climate negotiations COP26 in Glasgow, and today we get to hear about some of his experiences. This is Sibusiso for the Youth Tell All podcast. So I grew up in Soweto, but attended school in Bezerenhout Valley, um, which was just after Joburg. And, you know, these were two very different parts of town. I travel every day and, you know, get to see how vastly different and unequal our country is. And Bez Valley is known as a former suburb. It's not as good now, but it was pretty good back in the day and was, you know, a predominantly white sort of area. Um, while Soweto on the other side is a historically disadvantaged community where people like me, black people, you know, were marginalized by the system of apartheid. And I'd go to school with a minibus taxi transporting me for, with 10 to 15 other children, transporting us for one hour just to, you know, get to school. And houses in the area had, you know, when we got to Bez Valley, houses had manicured gardens with gnomes and post boxes, you know, and gnomes lived in their gardens. The further south um, west you got, the rougher the edges got. But no matter where you went, people put water-filled bottles on their lawns. And, you know, these transparent canine scarecrows were and still are um, legacies of, you know, the white people that lived there. And people lived in gated communities and transported their children to school every single morning. While, you know, in Soweto, we were clustered up in this minibus taxi going to school. And on the other side of town where I lived in Soweto, most houses, you know, were crumpled up into small spaces, which was a very far cry from the spacious um, neighborhoods in Bez Valley. People called the houses that um, we lived in, they were called Dombolo houses. Dombolo means a dumpling um, because the top of the houses resembled um, a dumpling. And the houses were split into three units. So you'd have one house, and then you'd have an A, a B, and a C, where it's three families in each of those units. This meant that you could you know, hear everything um, that was happening next door. All the late night drunken brawls, 
which happened more often than you thought. Neighbors gossiping about each other and mm. everything in between. <laughs> we had a very strong sense of community though, because all of our lives were, you know, so out in the open for all of us to see. And unfortunately, um, service delivery is a big issue. So we'd have residents having protests every now and then, which were, you know, a normality to an extent. And public facilities like traffic lights and bins, you know, would end up destroyed or roads would end up being blocked and burned, tires and bricks also burnt. The two areas were and still are sharp and distant contrasts of each other. As I started learning about um, climate change in school, it you know, wasn't very comprehensive because it was through a more environmental lens. But as I continued to learn about it, you know, I learned that uh, climate change poses a threat to infrastructure and resources. And I come from a community where infrastructure and resources are already very limited. And I grew very fearful as to what this meant for my community. I learned about how climate change stripped people of their livelihoods. Livestock and stalls, for example, in Kenya and Uganda, where informal traders made their livelihoods, were washed away. And having the exact same vulnerability in my community, where most households were headed by women who set up stalls on the side of the road to you know, sell vegetables and other goods to support their families. And being the very scrupulous person that I am, I you know, browsed the net for organizations that I could join to lobby in solidarity with other young people. And this was when I came across the organization called Youth at Sire and Model UN. And unfortunately, you had to be a principal to sign up your school to participate. And my principal wasn't so keen because, you know, we didn't have the numbers to back us up in terms of students wanting to participate. And I get very steadfast if I set my mind to something. And, you know, in hindsight, I'm half proud of myself for disguising as a principal in an email so that I could sign up my school because it exposed me to, you know, the incredible community of young people where everyone's voice matters, which really boosted my confidence as an individual. And joining Youth at Sire was a very sharp learning curve at first. There is, you know, such a vast network of schools from all over the country, township schools, private schools, and everything in between. However, being in, you know, one room with overachieving young individuals can really take a toll on you especially when you start to, you know, question your abilities. Imposter syndrome is something that is real and you feel like the next person who speaks fancier English um, than you is smarter than you and you feel like, you know, you don't have anything important to say. I remember this got so bad at uh, YLC 2019, which is an annual conference, the Young Leaders Conference, and I didn't participate in any of the Youth at Sire programs for a few months after that because I felt like I did not have the capacity to. I didn't feel as smart as the next person. I was, you know, scared that I would say something and look dumb or less smarter than the next person. And in all of this, I had to learn to trust my abilities and understand that my voice matters. I have never stopped having imposter syndrome even now I have imposter syndrome after hearing all your stories. 
And at the same time, um, this was when I also learned about um, climate justice and intersectionality on, you know, how we need to ensure that the poorest and, you know, the smallest contributors don't have to, you know, suffer the most for impacts of the climate crisis in the future. I had to learn about, you know, the intersections of systemic inequality, poverty, um, gender equality, etc., and how all of that links to the climate crisis, especially within, you know, the South African context, because we are still dealing with basic human rights issues, um, service delivery issues, and all of this makes it so difficult for, you know, people to have an interest to engage in the conversation on climate change, especially young people, because, you know, if it's through a, a socio-economic lens rather than an environmental lens, then, you know, they have that drawback. And after years of hard work, I got the opportunity to engage on this on the international level at Precop, um, which filled me with so much hope in the power that we as young people hold. You know, we had our mini COP in Milan with other young people, and this was a really open and inclusive space where, you know, us as young people, we were afforded the space to come up with solutions and, you know, rally and fight together for our future. And again, a few weeks later, I got the awesome opportunity to attend the COP conference. And this really opened my eyes to the fact that, you know, the crisis is something that is here with us now and that it's countries that are doing the least to, you know, contribute to the crisis that are bearing the impact of the crisis. While most world leaders, especially in the global north, are you know, still delivering on false promises with no real action. And COP was such a big and sharp learning curve for me as well, because I, you know, in most of the negotiation sessions, I was the youngest person in the room. And you know, my input had to really get um, interrogated for you know, anything that I wanted to say to be put across. And at this one instant, um, I found myself sitting together with the African group of negotiators where at the conference, countries negotiate in blocks. And so they, you know, group themselves according to, you know, region, how similar they are in, in regions. And I got this opportunity to engage with the chair of the African group of negotiators where I felt like, you know, the youth lens wasn't reflected enough in the negotiation rooms, which makes sense because there aren't any young people in those rooms. And I had to, you know, really fight for my input to be heard because then not only am I, you know, my input is, is it not only getting interrogated as a young person, but also as a young person from the global south, which was really difficult. But I'm, you know, very happy to say, even in my worst moments of imposter syndrome at the conference, I really had to question as to what was my intention on being there? Who was I there for and who was there, there representing? And that really, you know, pulled me back to believe that as a young person, my input is important and it's important that I ought to fight to get it across, no matter how difficult it was. And in the end, they, you know, um, listened to what I wanted to say. And this was taken up by the floor, which was really exciting at my first COP. So I really had to, you know, as a young person, go back and reflect as to what this meant for me and what this meant for other young people who are at the conference. And as much as the youth lens is often absent, I'm now coming back home really big on rallying for other youth voices to be included as well. And beyond that, making sure that 
other young people in the country are able to find their entry point because imposter syndrome and feeling like you you know can't contribute because you don't speak in a certain way or don't understand certain words that is a big stifling box but then young people need to understand that all our voices matter and we all have a stake to play thank you Cecil, thank you so much for sharing your story with us and this incredible journey of activism you've been on. I have a few questions. At the beginning of your story, you speak a lot about the differences between where you lived and the community on the other side. How much do you think these experiences motivated you to become an activist and helped you to really understand the issues of intersectionality in the climate space? So, you know, where I come from, that shaped my perspective and my view of the world. Um, of my country specifically. Because if you think about South Africa, South Africa is a very unequal country. And now we find ourselves in a situation where we're trying to tackle, you know, the climate crisis. And, you know, in tackling the climate crisis, it's important to know that it's not just an environmental crisis, but it's a social issue. It's an economic crisis as well. And so just looking at how those, you know, three dimensions intersect was important to me as, you know, a young person uh, living in South Africa. And I think it's you know important that we view climate solutions as you know systemic solutions that often ensure that there is you know equality and there's you know inclusion of all people thank you cbc so i completely agree with you i think climate change can act as a catalyst for change in many other sectors um, whether it may be environmental sectors economic social as you said in your story you mentioned that you were an official delegate for cop 26 in glasgow This is a huge undertaking. What were some of the things you did to prepare for COP26 so you could participate effectively? And then what was it like to be there, to engage at such a high level of decision making? Before COP26 um, happened, we, as young people from South Africa, from the South African Institute of International Affairs, were working on the Youth Climate Action Plan. So that is South Africa's first ever um, Youth Climate Action Plan, which, you know, we as young people led the process. Um, and so, you know, that allowed me to view as to what is the landscape in South Africa, what, where are the issues and what can we as young people do to, you know, tackle those issues? How can we work with other stakeholders to ensure that, you know, there is that component of collaboration, but not just collaboration, ensuring as to how our voices as young people, um, you know, from a diverse backgrounds, how do we work together to, you know, ensure that our voices are recognized and are heard? And once I got to COP26, it was, you know, a very overwhelming experience, but it also was, you know, a very big learning curve for me, Um, you know, as a young person there for the first time. It gave me a background look into, you know, what is happening uh, when, you know, parties are sitting at the table and making these decisions. And unfortunately, young people are still for the most part of it, they still left out. Um, but then, and what I saw is that I had to really just struggle to get my viewpoint across. You know, yeah, as a young person in a room of people that are above 35 years old when I'm the only 20 year old there, you have to prove yourself, um, you know, for your voice to even be recognized or for you to be seen as legitimate. Uh, and so there aren't young, enough young people in that space. And so when we young people get into that space, the adults are not as receptive or they don't know what to do, how to act, you know, how to interact with us um, in terms of, you know, decision making. So that was quite a, a, an interesting experience. But also, um, I think, it, it, you know, the hope 
in all of it is, you know, the young people that were present at the conference. We had such a big activist presence. There was, at one point, there was a strike with over 26,000 people, young people. Um, and so, you know, we, we're pushing and we're fighting to ensure that, you know, our future is protected. And that really gives me a lot of hope. Thank you, Sibusi. So one last question. You have a really unique perspective of youth engagement because you've been able to participate in high-level conferences such as COP26 and in so many other activities. Throughout your journey, have you noticed any changes to how people treat youth, how they value your inputs and perspectives, and can you offer any advice for people wanting to get involved in the space? Um, we have a very long way with regards to, you know, meaningful youth participation. But, you know, we have departments like uh, the Department of Forestry, Fisheries and Environment who are leading uh, that change um, and ensuring that young people are part of the process. They allowed us young people to go to the conference and which is not an opportunity that many young people get. So as much as we're appreciative, we still have, you know, a very long way to go with regards to meaningful youth participation. And as a young person who wants to, you know, come into the climate space, it's important that you find your entry point, find what you are passionate about and think about how that can be used, you know, to solve the problem and for you to participate in, in discourse. And most of us, you know, who are entering the space for the first time, there's a very big element of imposter syndrome. I know that this happened to me when, you know, I first participated in climate discussions with other young people. So knowing that your voice is important, no matter what, what you have to say matters. And, you know, it does not matter as to how someone else articulates their perspectives or how, where they come from or what background they're from. What is important is your voice in the bigger discussion. So it's important that you recognize that that, uh, you know, is an integral part of making, creating change and making sure that different, a diverse group of young people participate. Sibusiso, thank you so much for joining us today and for sharing your journey to COP26 in Glasgow. We wish you the best of luck with your future adventures and look forward to hearing more stories. Thank you so much, Almas, for the exciting conversation. That's all we have time for today, friends. Join us next time to hear more stories of youth making change in their communities. The Youth Tell All podcast is a production from Youth at Sire, the youth programs at the South African Institute for International Affairs. Youth at Sire is focused on giving a voice to young Africans to tackle the major issues that confront them while building capacity to engage with policymakers at national, regional and international levels. Youth at Sire empowers youth with the skills to become the continent's leaders with a commitment to co-creation and collaboration, inclusivity, decolonization, social justice and intersectionality. Our broader thematic areas cover climate change, gender, education, employment, and sustainable and regenerative futures. This series has been made possible with the financial support of the European Union's Partnership Instrument and the German Federal Ministry for the Environment, Nature, Conservation, and Nuclear Safety through the International Climate Initiative. The opinions expressed are the sole responsibility of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views of the funders. This episode was produced by Kiara Wirth and Desiree Koshuluk in collaboration with Solid Gold Podcast Studios. The Youth at Sire leadership team includes Desiree Koshuluk, Videbojo Libia, Lucille Nayadu, and Idumeleng Mpure. Story development has been done by Kiara Wirth. If you have a story to share or want to learn more about our podcast, our programs, or how to get involved in youth activism, 
head over to our website saya.org.za slash youth that's s-a-i-i-a dot org dot za slash youth youth at saya is across social media sites too so find us wherever you are thanks for listening and until next time remember youth are leading <laughs>